Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts oh hi i'm rachel zoe and my podcast climbing in heels is back and better than ever you might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. They are worried about what names will come out and which heads will roll because of it. People live double lives as a matter of course. It is part of the fabric of American life. And who creates American life more than Hollywood? Julia Phillips, producer. You know what? So what? If I knew Canton and Goober and... Nathanson or whatever. Who cares if I knew every single person who worked on the Columbia lot? What if I just happened to know them and never did these alleged things? It's ludicrous. 
Heidi Fleiss. We are looking to win this case. Anthony Brookliar, Heidi Fleiss's defense attorney. Sometimes she is sweet, and other times she's a vicious little vixen. I'm her hero, you know, but she had to rob me. If you will notice, all the customers are my customers. All the names are people I knew. Alex Fleming. Madam. It's beyond Hollywood. It's studio and police and everything. Previously on Heidi World... Heidi Fleiss's high-end escort service has been busted in a sting operation. Now she is going to court for two trials, and she is terrified. Welcome to Heidi World. Chapter 7, The Trial of the Century, 1994-1995. Welcome back to Heidi World. I'm your host, Molly Lambert. It is 1994. Heidi Fleiss is under fire from every direction, being pursued by law enforcement, the IRS, and the mass media, who circle helicopters over her house trying to catch a glimpse of her. She is forced to list the Tower Grove estate for a cool $1.8 million. She's running out of money and places to hide. But she's also the most famous girl in the world. And between stressing out about her forthcoming court case for pandering, she manages to film a cameo as a clerk at a liquor store in director Greg Araki's cult classic Cool Kid L.A. movie, The Doom Generation. In a monkey's paw situation, everyone in Los Angeles wants Heidi Fleiss, but not in the way she wanted them to. So guess where she goes? That's right, to a reporter to tell her side of the story. This time, it's Lynn Hirschberg for Vanity Fair for a story titled Heidi Does Hollywood. Will trusting a journalist to tell her story responsibly be a mistake? Let's find out. I'm not Madonna. I don't want to be famous. Earlier in the day, the TV tabloid news show Hard Copy showed up to Heidi's front door and gave her back a 1992 planner that they had bought from someone in Heidi's circle. Heidi has agreed to do an interview with Hard Copy in exchange for the return of the planner, and they have agreed. Heidi says she's given the planner to her friend Lahua Reed, a beach blonde who looks like Heather Locklear, and like Locklear, also dated Richie Sambora from Bon Jovi. Reed gave Heidi money for a lawyer when she got busted and loaned her the famous Norma Kamali wrap dress that she made her first court appearance in before Dolce & Gabbana offered to provide Heidi with a wardrobe for her trial. Lahua Reed claims she gave the planner back to Heidi weeks ago, but Heidi is certain that Lahua is the one who sold it to hard copy. When you picture California, you picture Lahua. She was a good friend. I don't know why, but I know she did it. I hope she made a lot of money off it. 
Lynn Hirschberg gets a look at the planner and says that it looks like any businesswoman's planner, hair appointments, spa trips, and paying the pool guy. Heidi's sports bets are noted in the upper right corner of each page, listing amounts like $1,500 on the Raiders game and whether she won or lost. She has lists of girls working and where they're being sent, but she's already blacked out a lot of stuff by scribbling over it with a pen. See, I was smart. Anything important, I inked out. Lynn Hirschberg says Heidi looks painfully thin, almost skeletal, but fierce as she tromps around her house in black boots and leggings with a black jacket thrown over her gaunt frame. Heidi opens up to Lynn Hirschberg about what life is like under the net. A lot of people are afraid of me. And they should be. Leaders of countries called me and asked for sex. You look at any picture of a politician with some girls around him and at least three of them will be mine. If I really came out and talked, I could have stopped NAFTA. Heidi has invited Lynn Hirschberg over to watch CNN tape a segment about Heidi's new line of cotton sleepwear, which she has dubbed Heidiwear. Models are milling around the room. Most of them are Heidi's friends. Her brother, Jesse, now 16, gets his hair styled for photos. Heidi's facialist, a woman named Nance, models a pink terry cloth bathrobe from Heidiwear. There's a man in his 50s that Heidi calls Fig, who she says she had a crush on in her teens. Fig is Paul Fagan, an entertainment lawyer and former multimillionaire who invented a proto-WeWork called Fagan Suites, where he subleased out office space to clients, mostly small law firms. After a real estate crash in the early 80s, Fig sold the business and decided he wanted to pursue his true love, magic. While still practicing law on the side, he reinvented himself as a magician named the Fantastic Fig. On the day of the shoot, he's entertaining at Heidi's house with card tricks and other close-up magic. A blonde guy named Rob is trying on the Heidi Wear flannel boxers. Heidi shows him where the condom pocket is and slips a Trojan into it. You put that here. What do you think of my sleepwear? Heidi is still entertaining at the mansion for as long as she can. Lynn Hirschberg says it feels like a sorority house, with barely any furniture and beautiful girls wandering in and out of rooms. She takes the CNN producer on a tour of the house while Lynn Hirschberg observes. You feel like you own the town from here. Facing a possible sentence of 11 years in jail, Heidi is pulling out all the stops while she's still free. She already botched one Heidi Ware photo shoot for a London publication and knows she's running out of last chances to sell her brand before the heat closes in on her. I have to take a Valium. I don't want that to happen again. Heidi's best friend, Victoria Sellers, appears in a black catsuit with big black boots, clutching her two pit bull puppies, quarter pounder and green eyes, talking about the tanning salon she just went to. What's going on? Oh my God, I forgot all about this. Victoria Sellers, Heidi's best friend. Victoria is a nymphomaniac. 
we had contests on how many guys we could go out with simultaneously. Victoria would do fun stuff like say, we got two guys on the phone. Do you want the blonde or the brunette? We were total perverts. We'd fuck the same guy in the same bed. Victoria liked rough sex and I didn't, so I'd leave sometimes. But plenty of mornings we'd wake up and say, what was his name? It was like that. I like sex, but I'm not crazy. A little over a year ago, I used to like to be mean to guys, but not anymore. Victoria is living with Heidi after a boyfriend became abusive. It's the summer after the car accident that landed her a drug charge. But Lynn Hirschberg notes that Victoria appears to take a tiny plastic bag filled with something from one of the models at the house. Heidi's brother, Jesse, watches it go down and walks outside to tell his sister while the CNN cameras are filming one of her friends prancing on the lawn in the boxer shorts with the waist rolled down. I think some of Victoria's friends brought her drugs. Don't be mad at her. Jesse Fleiss? Heidi is pissed. She can't be seen anywhere near drugs after catching her coke charge, let alone in front of a journalist who might report on it. Someone with a joint on them can get me in trouble now. I just have a prescription for Valium, and that's it. Listen to me. I don't even sound like myself. I can't have any fun anymore. I used to have fun, and now I don't. Things will never be the same again. Heidi is flustered by the various misconceptions and exaggerations about her being circulated in the press, that she's a drug addict, a sexually obsessed deviant, a bad girl par excellence. I'm not a nun, but I've never smoked a cigarette, and I've only smoked dope twice in my life. I do take a quaalude or Percodan once in a while, just since I've been in trouble. The next time Lynn Hirschberg goes to Heidi's house to follow up, it's winter. Heidi is wearing white sportswear with a massive diamond ring she says the richest man in Brazil gave her. She shows Hirschberg a scrapbook of all her recent mentions in the press. My sister Shayna started collecting this after the troubles began. I call it the troubles. Hirschberg details the infighting between madams and girls that plagues Heidi, her troubled but loving relationship with Madame Alex, the deep betrayal she feels by the girls who were busted at the Beverly Hilton and turned on her. Hirschberg compares it to junior high cliques. A madam's nightmare is to have girls testify against her. It drives the stake in your heart. Heidi has four girls testifying against her. You have to ask yourself, Why are her girls so disloyal? Did you take a cut from the girls after the cops busted them? Did you take your fucking 40% cut? I bet you fucking did. It's just the beginning, you know. Every fucking agency from the CIA to the NBA to the PTA to the IRS are going to knock on your fucking door. We're your worst fucking nightmare. You can't fuck with us. Alexandra Dadig. I can't get mad at them. I, I just can't. The police tried to get us to turn on each other, but I won't turn on them, not those girls. I I just know them. I know them. Heidi 
drives Lynn Hirschberg down the hill from her house in the white Mustang. Her Corvette got impounded when she lent it to a girl named Susie, who then got pulled over with expired registration and two joints in her purse. Heidi got a bail bondsman to bail out Susie, but the Corvette is still at the impound lot because Heidi feels too paranoid about being stared at in public to go to the DMV. Heidi is also exceedingly paranoid about the wiretap tapes that informant Dan Hanks has of some of the scandals, more high-profile involved parties, that he's been trying to sell to tabloids and news channels. The tapes have gone out to outlets like Vanity Fair, where people have heard them, but not published any of them yet. There are over 60 hours of recorded conversations between Heidi, clients, and employees, and Fox TV is interested in airing them as part of a special. Heidi is heading to see her lawyer, Anthony Brookliar, who is making a deal with Fox that they will not air the tapes in exchange for an interview with Heidi. There's a lot of phone sex on there, but mostly I'm just worried about Evans. Heidi means Robert Evans, who once again we can talk about as a confirmed client because he is dead. Robert Evans is freaked out that his involvement with Heidi will mean the end of his most recent and possibly last ever studio production deal. He wants to hold tight to the bosom of Paramount Pictures for as long as he possibly can. On one of the tapes, Heidi and Bob Evans discuss sending a call girl to see Evans's boss's son, which they do. They don't tell the son he's being set up with a call girl. They spend the week together without the son ever realizing that this vacation fling was arranged and paid for by Robert Evans. Evans and Heidi discuss on tape using the information to blackmail Evans's boss if he tries to cut Evans loose. It would kill Evans if that got out. He says being my friend has cost him dearly. When Heidi World returns, we'll tell you what happened with the secret tapes. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. 
because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, 
Welcome back to Heidi World. Fox Television bought the Hanks tapes and even started running promotions for them, calling them the tapes Heidi doesn't want you to hear. But her lawyer, Anthony Brookliar, jumped in and got them to agree to an interview with Heidi instead, a much bigger get for the network. The only reason Charlie Sheen's name came out is that when I was arrested, I had traveler's checks in my purse with his name on them. On the stand, he said a much lower amount than he actually spent with me. He probably spent closer to 300 or 400 grand on girls. He said something like 60,000. Heidi talks openly about a few of her clients, and Vanity Fair prints the names of both John Peters and Charlie Sheen, although she tries to make the magazine redact their names after the story runs. I think at this point in history, there is not a person alive who doesn't know that Charlie Sheen sometimes enjoys the company of paid escorts. He would pay for girls for his friends to be a generous host at the parties he had to watch big sports events on TV. Charlie was a gentleman. He'd pay for all his friends. They want to be studs. They don't want to say they pay for sex. Charlie gave a party for the Cincinnati Reds at his house. They played the Dodgers the next day, and I bet $30,000 on the Dodgers because I figured the Reds had been out all night with girls and drinking, and I still lost the money. The problem with Charlie Sheen is that the working girls all fall in love with him. He helps this along by constantly proposing marriage to them. His well-documented kink was for the girls, mostly blondes, to dress as cheerleaders and pretend it's the night before the big home game and he's the star quarterback. I have really mixed feelings about Charlie. His secretary called when everything happened. I thought, why didn't his secretary call when he wanted girls at weird hours or if he wanted drugs at weird hours? She also has a sex tape of Charlie and two Heidi girls. He's sitting there high and two of the girls start kissing him. You can imagine the rest. Heidi tells Lynn Hirschberg about some other famous clients that she keeps off the record but blind itemizes, and some clients that didn't work out because they were too cheap. Shannon Doherty called up once to ask for two girls for her fiancé's bachelor party. She said, I want them to be pretty, but not too pretty. She was giving me all these orders, and then she said, I only want to pay 200 bucks a piece. And I said, why don't you do it yourself? And I hung up on her. You will remember, of course, that Shannon also got in a fight with Heidi's friend Bonita Money at the Roxbury. Shannon Doherty responded that Heidi's story was distorted, but copped to the fact that she did call Heidi to make an inquiry. Hollywood celebrities and industry big mockers make up only a fraction of Heidi's clientele. The real money is still overseas. A man called me once and said, a king is coming over and it's not a Saudi king. I said, the Saudi is paying $2,500 a piece. How much are you paying? He said, it's not a paying kind of thing. He's a king. I said, no, thank you. Even kings should have manners. Heidi also says she supplied call girls to members of the Bush senior and Clinton administrations. She would get calls asking for arm candy for elite men for fundraising events in Washington, D.C., 
although she says she paid less attention to which gray-haired senator was going on dates with which girl than maybe she should have been. Hirschberg wonders why these powerful rich men, who could date beautiful women for free, bother paying for it. Yvonne Naj tells her his take. The appeal of getting a prostitute is control. Men can tell these girls what to do, and they do it, and then they leave. The man is in control. Ivan Naj. Of course, the sex workers do not think this at all. They are the ones actually in control, milking these vain rich men's bank accounts by massaging their egos, pretending to be interested in them, essentially acting. I always took advantage of them. Name someone, I know all the sleaze. If he's a high roller or a creep or sleazy, I know I've heard of him. I hope some of these guys get it. I can't take the fall for everyone. Yvonne Naj is also personally harassing Heidi's girls, encouraging them to flip or defect to him. He also refers to himself now as Mac Daddy, the name he gave himself for his line of erotic CD-ROMs. He calls one Heidi girl named Susie to scare her and tapes the call. You're welcome to be friends with Heidi. I mean, you, you can be friends with Al Capone. I don't care, but yeah, birds of a feather. You know, you, you need to distance yourself from that garbage. Distance yourself from them. Let her call Bob Evans. Maybe, <laughs> maybe they can get that joining jail cells. You don't fuck with Mac Daddy, bitch. You fuck with Mac Daddy and it's adios, motherfucker. Just like that. You saw what happened to fucking Alex. She used to have that big house on the hill, but she got shot out of the water like a fucking buffalo. You know, she fought with Mac Daddy. So just be straight, be cool, and don't run no games. Ivan Naj claims this is just his way of flirting with Susie. Meanwhile, Heidi arrives to meet Anthony Brookliar, the lawyer who she was referred to by Madam Alex, whose pandering sentence he got reduced to probation. If all lawyers were like Tony, there wouldn't be any lawyer jokes. Brookliar coaches Heidi through their defense strategy, which is to point out the hypocrisy of the men who illegally paid for sex getting off without charges while Heidi is punished. He runs her through some various court scenarios, giving her prompts of how to respond. If she's guilty of pandering, surely the Johns are also guilty of paying for sex. If I'm guilty, the men are guilty, and that's it. I'm a 27-year-old girl, and they're big, powerful men. Heidi's lawyer, Anthony Brookliar, is a handsome Italian-American guy. His hero is Elvis Presley, whose pompadour he imitates. Brookliar is known as a mob attorney because his first major case was defending his father, Dominic Brookliar, who was in the L.A. Mafia. He then defended a number of other mob guys, including Michael Rusatello, during the decline and fall of the Italian Mafia in Southern California at the hands of the FBI with RICO charges, which you may know about from The Sopranos. Brookliar's current strategy is to get the Johns so scared that they'll be named, they try to force the city to drop the charges. We want all these guys to call their lawyers and tell them to call the DA's office. 
Elvis, the king, would have filed this motion. Hirschberg calls Heidi and Anthony Brookliar's relationship flirty and a little paternal, Heidi's favorite. Heidi laughs at his jokes and Elvis impressions, but becomes solemn when the camera crew shows up to film her interview, reminded of the gravity of her situation. As soon as the story comes out, Heidi's lawyer sends a letter to Vanity Fair demanding a retraction, stating, The article's quotes concerning James Kahn, Charlie Sheen, Robert Evans, John Peters, Steve Roth, Claudia Carnicella, and Susie Sterling are completely false and defamatory of Ms. Fleiss. Moreover, the innuendo relating to Ms. Fleiss's private life and her alleged affair with an individual named Mimi is equally untrue. Anthony Brookliar was used to doing damage control for high-profile clients, the first of whom was his father, Dominic, who I will tell you about now, because it's another interesting detour that fits into the whole subterranean history of Los Angeles. Dominic Brookliar went by the name Jimmy Ragazzi when he joined up with notorious Jewish gangster Mickey Cohen's gambling syndicate in 1940s Los Angeles. Jimmy Ragazzi then defected from Mickey Cohen to the boss of the Los Angeles mob, a guy named Jack Dragna, and he officially became a made man in 1947. In 1949, he's part of a failed hit on his old boss, Mickey Cohen, at a restaurant on the Sunset Strip as part of an escalating mob battle called the Sunset Wars for control of vice in LA in the late 40s and early 50s. Jimmy mainly gets into loan sharking, and in the 1960s, he ends up with a crew in Orange County and works his way up from capo to boss there. He also legally changes his name to Dominic Brookliar, an anglicized version of his real birth name, Dominic Brucoleri. I don't know what it was. I saw it when I was five years old. My father could walk into a place and for whatever reason, the room would stop. It was as if every eye was on him. He just had an incredible charisma in a very subtle way. He wasn't loud, he wasn't fast talking, he was understated, but men respected my father. Tony Brookliar says the only hint of his dad's secret life was a strange sudden vacation the whole family took to Texas right after his dad failed to kill Mickey Cohen. Tony was the one to answer the door of their suburban Anaheim house when cops came for his father and vividly recalls seeing his father held at gunpoint by 15 cops for a charge that was later dropped. He saw his father's name in connection with the mafia for the first time in a newspaper. Before that, he believed his father's story that he was a humble Orange County used car salesman. And as a kid, Tony washed the cars in the used car lot after school. Dominic Brookliar only referred to La Cosa Nostra with the terminology gangsters used to avoid ever referencing the mafia directly, calling it this thing of ours. When Dominic finally let his son in on the secret of the real family business, he spoke as though it was in the past. In reality, Dominic Brookliar was still working for the Los Angeles crime family throughout his son's life. Tony Brookliar got good grades and enrolled in the Naval Academy, During his freshman year, a national report on organized crime was released that fingered his father as a high-ranking member of the mafia in LA. Tony claims one of his commanding officers told him not to expect to succeed in the Navy, implying his mafia heritage would keep him from success. 
So Tony dropped out and transferred to Loyola, then went to UCLA Law. He says he became a lawyer out of a desire to defend his own dad should they ever come for him again. In 1974, Dominic Brookliar and his underboss are charged with racketeering under the RICO Act, and he pleads guilty to one charge. In 1975, Dominic Brookliar orders the murder of a Los Angeles hitman named Frank the Bomp Bompensiero, who he suspects of being a rat. Brookliar tried to kill Bompensiero for a year, but failed. To convince the Bomp he wasn't trying to kill him, he appointed him consigliere. However, Brookliar's suspicion was correct. Bompensiero was a rat for the FBI. The FBI used him as an informant and rang a sting operation, creating a fake pornography business in Van Nuys, then had Bomp spread the word around town about it and suggest the mob should shake them down. Naturally, I wondered if Sopranos creator David Chase was in Los Angeles working as a TV writer yet in this era and read the Los Angeles Times when the story took place. A rat for the FBI whose last name is Bompensiero? Was there any chance he'd named Big Pussy Bompensiero on The Sopranos after this guy? So, because I am the best journalist in the world, I asked my friend, the writer Matt Zoller-Seitz, if he would ask David Chase. I made him an offer he couldn't refuse. No, I just sent him a DM on Twitter and he said yes. He wrote David Chase, who said, No, it's just a coincidence. Uh, I guess there are a lot of snitches with similar names, and uh, the bomp is maybe a pretty common name for snitches in the mob. But now we know. Dominic Brookliar made good on his promise that Bompensiero would have to be killed. And shortly after that, Bompensiero was shot to death in a phone booth in 1977. Dominic Brookliar claimed to his son that he had nothing to do with the murder, and Tony Brookliar believed him enough to take on the case. Another one of Dominic Brookliar's underlings flipped on him, and in 1980, he was charged with racketeering, the plot to extort money from bookmakers, loan sharks, and pornographers, as well as Frank Bompensiero's murder. Ultimately, Dominic was convicted for racketeering and extortion, but acquitted of Frank the Bomp Bompensiero's murder. He was sentenced to five years. The feds cracked down on organized crime in Los Angeles in 1980, rounding up and prosecuting the remaining living old school gangsters. Dominic Brookliar was tried, with his son Anthony Brookliar acting as his lawyer, making an emotional plea. At the sentencing in 1981, Anthony Brookliar tearfully begged the judge to spare his father from prison. There are things in his past he shouldn't be proud of and I'm not proud of, but he's always provided for his family. Whatever sentence he does, he'll be missed every day. Dominic Brookliar was sent to serve his sentence in an Arizona prison. When Tony Brookliar was flying to see his father in the Tucson prison before his death, he begged his dad not to get involved in the mafia again when he was released. Dominic's wife... Tony's mother, Frances, recalls seeing her husband in prison and thinking he had aged so much from being in jail that he seemed about 90 years old now. I hope that this was over, that the family couldn't take any more of this. My mother couldn't take any more of this. And he said, sort of in a philosophic way, it's been over for a long time. We're dinosaurs. 
In July of 1984, Dominic Brookliar drops dead of a heart attack in jail. From then on, Anthony Brookliar takes a stand for loan sharks, radio payola blackmail scammers, a carpet cleaning business stock scam called ZZZZZ, which involves someone skimming money from their Jewish boss into a white supremacist group, and two women accused of running a $10 million boiler room telemarketing outfit in Encino. He also defends whoever was still left from the world of organized crime in Los Angeles. You just do not have organized crime in Southern California, at least in the Italian mafia sense that we all read about back East. Here, you have somebody hitting somebody over the head with a rolled up newspaper. Back there, they shoot people. It's different. In 1989, he defends Mike Rizzatello, who was accused of killing a man named Bill Carroll over control of a topless bar in Costa Mesa called the Mustang. The Mustang was under investigation for alleged prostitution and drugs. It allegedly netted a profit of $150,000 a month. The Mustang was controversial in conservative Orange County, which tried and failed to shut down the topless bar after it opened on Harbor Boulevard in 1982. Bill Carroll met Mike Rizzatello at an Italian restaurant in Santa Ana. Rizzatello brought his driver, Joey Grosso, who owned a limo service called Diplomat Limousine Service in Newport Beach, but arrived with no car. After dinner, Rizzatello asked Carol for a ride back to their car, which was in Costa Mesa. Rizzatello directed him to an empty parking garage where he and Grosso allegedly tackled Carol and put three bullets in his head with a silencer. Bill Carroll lived but lost his vision. He refused to name his attackers for 18 months until he faced his own set of bank fraud charges and flipped. Two other people associated with the Mustang Strip Club were assassinated. The Mustang's actual owner, Jimmy Casino, yes, Jimmy Casino, was shot to death in his Buena Park home on New Year's Day. A six foot seven inch tall guy who was a bouncer known as Big George Yudzevich was shot three times in the head and killed in Irvine. So, Anthony Brookliar, son of the last mob don in Southern California, continues to defend cocaine dealers, money launderers, and the like at his Beverly Hills law firm, Marks and Brookliar. He helps out whichever of his dad's old friends are still alive and gets their sentences softened. By 1989, Anthony Brookliar was trading on his mob pedigree for publicity. He was the subject of a profile in the LA Times. The profile tells how Brookliar played backyard catch with a hitman named Jimmy the Weasel, how he thought his father was really an Orange County used car salesman, and how he left his job as a deputy state attorney general to defend his father. The profile notes that Tony Brookliar wears Hugo Boss suits is one of the costliest lawyers in LA and has the front table at a restaurant named Giuseppe, where he fraternizes with mobsters and Hollywood types alike, sometimes grabbing a mic to sing his signature song, Volare. In 1990, Anthony Brookliar made a cameo appearance in a failed TV pilot attempting to capitalize on the success of the hit show LA Law called Bar Girls. Bar Girls is a show about bad girl lawyers, and its most notable cast member is a very young Elizabeth Moss. 
So you can see exactly why Tony Brookliar appealed to Heidi Fleiss, who also came from a close, loyal family and whose father was a public servant, but the sort who sometimes had his picture taken for the newspaper. Tony Brookliar is Heidi's type of guy, a dashing, handsome, charismatic, fast-talking guy with ethics that bend towards her own. The Hugo Boss suits probably didn't hurt. So Anthony Brookliar decides to argue that Heidi's entire escort operation was nothing more than consensual sex between consenting adults. Your Honor, no one was hurt in this case, no one was coerced, and no one operated under duress. When Heidi World returns, how the mainstream media railroaded Heidi Fleiss and sex workers' rights to fit their predetermined narrative. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? 
that's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Heidi World. The 90s news media did not take up a pro-sex work angle on the Heidi Fleiss story because it did not jibe with theirs, which was to exploit Heidi for media coverage while condemning her practice. In mainstream media, all sex work is conflated into one dangerous mass, ignoring the fact that voluntary sex work is different from sex trafficking. The trope basically says that doing sex work is self-victimization, and implies that women who do it are knowingly putting themselves in the line of fire. They never suggest that the answer to violence against sex workers is decriminalizing sex work. In this framing, women can never be consensual participants in selling their own bodies because, surprise, surprise, in our misogynistic world, women's bodies don't really belong to them. They are chattel for reproduction. And if a woman's sex appeal is going to be sold for profit, the person who profits must be male. 
This is not to say that women can't also exploit other women and girl boss gatekeep gaslight. Just that nobody wanted to say that Heidi could be running an ethical business because the idea that sex work can exist ethically, let alone that it exists naturally and should be decriminalized rather than trying to eradicate it, is still a third rail. The Heidi Fleiss story didn't fit the framework. Nobody died, and seemingly Heidi's potential for violence was always aimed right back at Heidi herself. She was a self-destructive person with violent, abusive partners. And the only person at risk of going to jail was Heidi herself, and mainly because she couldn't stop herself from talking about it. The game didn't stop just because Heidi left it, and I'm sure that somebody is probably running high-end escorts in LA to this day. Someone who, if they're smart, will make sure that we never hear their name. Heidi could have had a very comfortable, upper-middle-class, straight life, but she chose to gamble it all on Vice and hit the jackpot. She pulled Hollywood's pants down and exposed the entertainment business for what it really is, a grift to make money that occasionally, accidentally, produces great art. Everybody is titillated by this, but people have been murdered. Studios have covered up for the malfeasance of actors. People have supported the drug habits of actors. And other people have built into budgets allowances for cocaine. Those are horrible things. Prostitution is way down on my list. Liz Smith, gossip columnist. Heidi is well aware that her trial is a show trial. The LAPD are trying to use it as propaganda to show how tough they are on crime. But Heidi has seen through experiences like the death of her friend Wendy Tarr that the LAPD are actually incompetent, ineffective fools when it comes to important issues like domestic violence or serial rape. They did nothing to solve the murder of her friend Wendy Tarr or find her murderer, James Edward Noel, who Heidi helped find by going on a TV show. The police knew who killed her. They knew all about Noel's criminal history and how dangerous he was. They had already tied Noel to at least 10 other rape cases, yet they did nothing about it. She called the cops constantly to see how the Wendy Tarr case was progressing, which made her realize that the cops didn't do anything. However, they put all of their money and effort into raiding her, somebody conducting a consensual business. When it came to investigating me, a 27-year-old girl with no violent criminal record, a task force the size of the National Guard, was called out to search and destroy at virtually any cost. I am not complaining about my arrest. What I did was my choice, and I accept responsibility for it. But how many violent criminals are ignored because law enforcement priorities are in the wrong order? Lynn Hirschberg takes a side trip to meet Yvonne Naj for herself. Yvonne Naj is now 55 years old, living in a condo in Century City whose walls are hung with his art collection of Klaus Oldenburg lithographs, some Lichtensteins, and one Rauschenberg. He meets her wearing jeans and a sweatshirt. He points out the classiness of his place and says he's nothing like the scumbag he's being portrayed as in the press. The MacDaddy is a high-class guy. There are some tasteful nude photographs of young women on the mantelpiece. He says he's not involved in the escort business. He's just a natural magnet for hot girls. 
the question should be, how do they meet me? <laughs> it's terrible for me to say at this point, because you know, I can be looped into this whole group, but Heidi has an affinity for real slime balls. Yvonne Nagy has sold his life rights for a TV movie for $100,000. He wants to be played by the actor Armand Desante and direct the project himself. Uh, the networks didn't really like it. Despite the constant influx of young, beautiful women, which he calls a life-ruining occupational hazard, he still seems to pine for Heidi. For an abusive boyfriend who says he really hates her, he's oddly sentimental about their relationship. He saw her on Memorial Day that spring for the last time. We spent the night together at the Marriott. She was really emotional. She knows I'm the most decent thing that has happened to her. I thought I'll sleep with him and I'll be free for six months. But I started hitting him in the middle of the night. I said, you're a freak. Leave me alone. And I ran out. I wanted to marry her, but I can't be married to a drug addict. Heidi has a problem dealing with reality, so she has to be anesthetized. I'm riding the wave. I, I don't really think I have a purpose. Back at Heidi's, in her girly bedroom, everything is pink, polka-dotted, or trimmed with lace. There's a mirror on one wall and a picture of Ben Franklin that she says Robert Evans gave her. I once told him I'd rather see Ben Franklin than go to his house for a screening, and he sent over that picture. Heidi is bummed out because she missed the Fleiss family Thanksgiving for the first time in her life. She felt too sad and guilty about everything to face them on the holiday. It's the only time of the year that the entire Fleiss clan gets together. But I just couldn't. She spent Thanksgiving with her chosen family instead. Kelly Lang, the first female nighttime newscaster in L.A. who married the director William Friedkin. Claudia Carnicella, who sold a red Corvette to help Heidi pay her legal bills. And Heidi's BFF, Victoria Sellers. It was great, uh, except Victoria showed up two and a half hours late and she seemed really strung out. As a connoisseur of money-making, Heidi can't help but understand why some of her most loyal girls are taking the money to appear on camera. Brandy McLean is guesting on the show A Current Affair, another nighttime tabloid show, and signed a contract to be their correspondent on the Heidi Fleiss scandal. They shot enough of Brandy for a miniseries. I know Brandy's a jabber jaw. But Brandy says only nice things about Heidi on camera and calls Heidi to make sure everything is cool between them. Heidi was also worried about a sex tape that she made herself with a penthouse pet that the penthouse pet threatened to blackmail her with. To get ahead of it, she gave it to one of her girls to put on the market herself. It's very explicit. With the phone taps and the videotapes and Brandy on TV, there's not one secret left. I feel like a circus event. A few days later, Heidi has kicked Victoria Sellers out of the house for doing the unthinkable, 
betraying her to a UK tabloid without asking Heidi first. The interview runs with the title, How I Became a Hollywood Hooker and Sold My Body for $4,000 a Night, and cashes in on the British tabloid appeal of her father being the famous British comedian Peter Sellers. She was supposed to get $100,000 for the interview, but she says she never got the money. Victoria stabbed me in the back. I told her, if you don't leave now, I think I'll kill you. The thing with Victoria is that we were never lovers, but there was a lot of sex stuff. You don't share that with everyone. I'm so upset. This bothered me more than the arrest. The Lynn Hirschberg profile for Vanity Fair ends with an image of Heidi Fleiss alone, betrayed by her best friends, left out to dry by rich clients and the press, exiled from her family, in the spotlight and totally isolated from everything and everyone she loves, pursued day and night, but completely, utterly alone. I never thought it would end up this way. But this Victoria thing, there's some things you don't do. You have to draw the line somewhere. People will do anything for money. And I don't mean sex. They will do anything. That's what I've learned. Next time on Heidi World... Heidi harnesses the media frenzy around her trial to launch a cutting-edge line of sleepwear called Heidi Wear, while director Nick Broomfield makes a documentary about Heidi mania. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. 
Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love at First Listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.